0: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Chris and Kara can start making their way up as well. We're going to start this morning with an amazing uh, testimony from this lovely couple. But if, uh, again, if you're new visiting, welcome. My name's Christian. This is my wife, Sue. We have the pleasure of leading this wonderful tribe. And we've been in a series that we've been calling hashtag Relationship Goals because we like to appeal to millennials. And whatever is below millennials, I stopped kind of paying attention past me. I'm technically still a millennial, I was told, which feels awkward, but that's what Google said. so we're trying to be trying to be a little bit uh, humorous with that, but we've been talking about relationships, and it's been it's been really how many of you have had some measure of just the Lord touching an area of the heart that's been tender? yes, yes, and and I feel like. What, what, we've, what we've encountered is a bit of, of uh, sometimes heaviness. When you hit on, on wounds, it doesn't feel amazing, does it? I think I shared the story of I had a root canal for the first time this, uh, this summer. Praise the Lord. And uh, to find out that I needed that root canal, I wasn't supposed to have the flaming root canal. I wasn't supposed to have it. I was supposed to be fine. I was getting a cap on my mouth and the dentist was about to put that cap on. She just put that, you know that little, that little demonic air gun that they have, the dentist? You know what I'm talking about? That little demon air whistle? They just put that right there in that little sensitive spot and shh, and I manifested like you wouldn't believe, and found out I needed a root canal. You know, sometimes when the Lord is touching on deep wounds that, that relationships touch, it can, it can have that kind of jolting effect, and, and it can be a little bit heavy at times. So we've noticed that, and we're also coming into Holy Week. It's Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. And there's this mix of amazing emotion and celebration and the anticipation of the resurrection, and yet there's also this kind of somber reality that we're dealing with the reality that Jesus Died for you and for me. And he took everything, everything of imperfection and of this concept of sin, and he laid it into the grave because of the cross. And on the other side of that, on the other side of that, we have a hard time. We sometimes live with our, our body on the two sides of the cross in that tension. And I think the Holy Week, this week, is meant to give us a reminder of that tension, that we're still in a, in a life that has all sorts of stuff that this life throws at us. And then on the other side of that is, is absolute joy, hope, love, peace because of Jesus. So what we've been venturing into, week one, there was facing fears that affect relationship. And week two and three, Jared and Krista did a phenomenal job of pulling out connection keys and connection tools and we're we want to we're even going to kind of start a, a three-week, 21-day challenge at the end of the service today to start to utilize some of those tools if you haven't already in your relationships. And then Sue and I talked about shame and vulnerability. Uh, and then last week, we honed in on discipline versus punishment. They are not the same thing, although we can confuse them. This morning, this couple is going to navigate uh, a couple things. I'm not going to speak for them. But they, they carry something of walking in the realm of, of perseverance. Everything that we need, that we have access to is already finished because of the cross. It's already done. Jesus already paid the price for everything you need. And yet the, the Christian life has the tension of needing to have not just faith. Faith Faith can have someone that needs a miracle come up right now, and we pray for them, and we believe God's will is to heal them. And we see a lot of people healed. And when we don't, we don't take offense at God. We live in the tension of what we don't understand. But the concept of faith in the scriptures is usually more than just just faith for the supernatural right now. Because in Jesus' teaching, it was already done. The healing should already happen, but enduring faith is what the church had to continually go back for. The perseverance of faith that endures. Because faith will bring the miracle, but enduring faith brings character, to quote Bill Johnson. Enduring faith is what brings character. And I can tell you, this couple has character because they have put their lives into a place of, of perseverance and enduring faith. So without further ado, can you give this couple a little warm welcome as they share their stories? Thank you. Thanks.
1: Um, I was eight years old <clears throat> when my dad was diagnosed with a cancerous brain tumor, 10 when he moved out due to the illness, and 21 when he passed. By no fault of his own, I was abandoned. After... Uh, A year after college, I was lost. I was crumbling inside trying to live up to the performance and success of my forefathers. We weren't Christian. I never internalized messages such as, attaboy, you're worthy, I believe in you, I love you. My identity, messages that were supposed to come from father. I developed an addiction to pornography as a way to escape to fantasy and generally medicate my pain. I was given my first Playboy when I was 12 watched my first porno at 14. In my early 20s, at the peak of the insanity of my destructive habit, I was coming home and looking at it nearly every day after work. I hated myself. I had panic attacks and found myself in the psych ward of a mental hospital for suicidal ideation. I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and bipolarity. I hit bottom.
2: My anxiety and perfectionism started at an early age. While I received love in my family, there was also some wounds. Because of my enmeshment with my mom and the instability of my parents' marriage, that meant divorce and separation and reconciliation several times growing up. I felt unsteady, insecure, and developed panic attacks. I threw up frequently leaving for kindergarten at the thought of leaving my mom. I wanted to please and became the good girl. Striving to gain security and stability by performing well, making sure others were okay with me, and getting it right. This even bled into my relationship with God. I asked Jesus into my heart so many times as a little girl to be sure he'd come and stay there and not go away at any hint of my bad behavior. But performing grew old. And my desire for love and acceptance turned into rebellion in high school. Drinking, smoking, breaking sexual boundaries, looking to guys and friends to fill my need. Once God got a hold of my heart and called me back to him, I was all in for Jesus. But the anxiety and desire to get it right and earn my love and stability began to play out in my serving God. Was I doing enough, fasting enough, praying enough, getting his will exactly right, I did what was expected so that others would love and want me to, but this was an exhausting and unsustainable way to live.
1: Broken and on my knees, I began to surrender. Friends encouraged me to go to church for the first time. I did and found a mentor. I thought looking at porn was just what males did, but I started to see my denial. I started to attend recovery meetings at 25, although I didn't stay at first but I did start to regularly attend weekly Bible study groups and counseling. Finally, in 2010, when I was 30, I started to attend regular recovery meetings. Matthew 11:28 28 says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's how I felt in these communities. They were Jesus with skin on. Recovery heavily involves learning to lean on Jesus through community.
2: I was tired and knew there must be more. I stopped serving in ministry, and God began to unravel my performance and my religion. It was disorienting, but so good. Through a spiritual direction and formation program, God taught me about his love without performing and began to really settle and center me. But still, in my work life and certain relationships, I was striving to please and perform. I met Chris at this time at Clark and Tiff's wedding. Thank you. (laughs) He was in recovery for pornography, but not yet sober. We dated for a while and he became my best friend and love. He encouraged me to get into my own recovery, even pointing out some unhealthy patterns in me. <laughs> what? what exactly? I was so resistant and so mad. It was him with the addiction, right? His problem, his recovery. I could support him, of course, and I knew I had my own issues, but I was dealing with them in my own way with God. The pride was subtle, but it was there nonetheless. I couldn't see at the time that I was in denial about my own need for deeper healing and freedom. But God was using my relationship with Chris to help me face my deep fears, wounds, and unhealthy patterns.
1: I fell in love with this amazing woman and wanted to marry her after a year of dating. But she was wiser than that. as I still wasn't free from porn. A counselor encouraged more recovery work. That was not what I wanted to hear, but it was what I needed to hear. We broke up. This was really painful. I went to Sex Addicts Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous. I joined a paid recovery group far away at 6.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning that was led by a Christian sex addiction counselor. I made significant progress, but I still couldn't get sober. I gave up alcohol as a gateway drug, set up filters on my computers, got rid of the internet altogether at one point, got roommates in my room, and I still found ways to act out. But faithfully, progress was made. As Roman 2.5 says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. My heart still ached for Kara, and I thought about her often. After two years of being apart, and with greater freedom, I decided I would call. We started dating again, got engaged, and six and a half years after we met, we finally married.
2: It was a journey, it was a journey for sure. (laughs) When Chris called, I was shocked and excited. I had tried out a few women's recovery groups but didn't stay with those. But now we knew we needed to continue our recovery work together. Before we married, Chris and I regularly met with our counselor, Carlos, and still do. Our work with him has been so fruitful. He's here today along with his wife, and we're so grateful to them for their love and support. Carlos also invited me to his women's group, and I knew I needed to try. What I found is a solid, empowered group of women who are so brutally honest and vulnerable about their struggles, who share humbly and reach out to each other to ask for help. This is not about fixing our husbands or each other or even doing the right thing. It is about surrendering to God and acknowledging our own coping mechanisms that have been present long before we met our husbands with the problem. (laughs) It's allowing Christ into the deep wounds and insecurities of our hearts, allowing the Spirit to heal our brokenness with His truth and grace. This is how the layers continue to come off. I show up to my meeting and I make calls when I'm triggered rather than lash out at Chris. I learn to sit in the uncomfortable emotion without fixing it or running from it. I learn to be honest and vulnerable in relationships, speaking courageously about my feelings rather than trying to manage people's emotions or expectations or even their opinions of me. I can only be responsible for me and my choices. I am secure in the love of God.
1: Last week, Krista and Jared shared about bringing discipline into our homes. That's in the mundane and by the spirit. The daily AM quiet times and calls and text to accountability partners and the rest of the hard work was at first the mundane and now they are joyful and a spirit-filled part of my re- process that I actually love. Like the spirit-filled love after marriage course that broke me in the best way. And now I have 18 months freedom from pornography. The freedom is my connection to God, recovery guys, church community, and now my wife. Although I still do struggle with feelings of unworthiness and masturbation and fantasy, they are drastically reduced. I don't feel the weight of the shame in the same way. He did it for me. But I had to be open to the spirit and discipline he was asking of me to get there.
2: Now I experience greater emotional peace, freedom, healthy boundaries, and good disciplines. Chris and I laugh more and let go more, forgive faster, reconcile more quickly. And trust me, we have not arrived. We still have our struggles, but now we have the tools and community to go through it together. The Lord gave me this verse several months ago, and he speaks to me out of it in this season. Isaiah 41, 9 through 10 says, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In moments when I'm feeling insecure and start to swirl in my mind with anxious thoughts, I come back to the Lord and let This verse, and let his love and acceptance wash over me. I have chosen you and not rejected you. It's like a healing balm to my heart. Now, if you are like me, and you don't feel like you have an outright addiction, it can be hard to even recognize the destructive thought patterns, beliefs, and actions that we think are just a part of us. But Jesus desires to heal and sanctify all of us, every part from the inside out. It takes surrendering to him, letting him tell us who we are, and being courageous enough to get really honest with ourselves, with God, and with others. We actually find great healing through each other. For me, it took getting humble and getting healing in a way that I did not want to, but surrendering to God who knew best. What will it be for you? Are you willing to let God into the deep places Are you willing to surrender and do something different?
1: If you're looking for change, you've got to change something. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. That means getting into deep, intimate, authentic community. That means maybe that's a recovery group. Maybe that's my Monday night men's recovery group. Maybe that's a Frontier Connect group. Maybe that's coffee once a week with a mentor, accountability partner, a frontier leader, a therapist, or pastor. Being vulnerable is going to feel uncomfortable. We don't grow if we don't challenge ourselves. Maybe God is calling you to do that thing you don't want to do, but that you kind of know that you need to do and trust that Jesus will show up. Thank you.
0: so amazing. I, I love it when I don't even need to preach. <laughs> it's just, it just feels like I can't screw this up now. Um, you, know, you can get that a little situated while I... I, I just want to just kind of get whatever situated that you want to do, babe. You are better at this than me. Um, so here's, here's what I want to invite us into to respond to that. Um, we're not going to respond right this second. We're going to have a few minutes to ruminate on, on what they just shared. They, they just touched on, I believe, every heartstring in the human spirit as it relates to your identity <laughs> and every relational dynamic that you may have wrestled with in the past, present, or future. Yeah. And there's no way that our message or even what we get into in the Word is going to potentially cover all the beautiful things that someone's history with God and their message even just carried. But their challenge to us, I think, is one that we have to not ignore. And so, even right now, if if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you something and stirring inside of you, hang on to that. Don't let it go. Don't let us deflect you or deflect you from where what that is. And and then after the service, they're going to be standing here with Carlos. They can pray for you, talk with you. You can ask them questions. Uh, and then there's also going to be a team up um, if something else is highlighted this morning, or maybe you just need to sit there in your seat and spend some time with the Holy Spirit. But For me, as I was processing uh, their, their story earlier this week and knowing a bit about it already and what they were going to share, there was something of the emotional connection with the word abandonment that I think that we need to hone in on today. Abandonment is one where it's a familiar term, but it's not one that I think we have a lot of familiarity with how the Lord speaks into that in his word. And as I, as I went into the Word this week and, and asked the Lord, just to talk to me about abandonment, Father. I, I felt Him highlight that so many, even in my own life, abandonment, I didn't lose a father or, or a parent at a young age. But I've struggled with abandonment every time I feel alone, every time I feel isolated, every time I feel like I'm in a situation where there's people around me that don't understand me, that don't get me. And and maybe for you, where have you felt abandonment in your life? What are, what are the things that you're struggling with that there's there isn't a place of vulnerability? There isn't a connection with someone else in it. There's not a connection with your heavenly father in it. And and I was reminded that oftentimes when, when we're struggling with abandonment, our prayers to the Lord can look oftentimes something like, I'm waiting. Where are you in this, Lord? I feel lost, alone, abandoned. And I realized that that, that, was, that was really the thing, waiting on God and where are you, God, that the story of Scripture starts with and never really lets go. Now if, you could start back even in Genesis, but if you started in, with Abraham, he had to wait and wait and wait for the promise and wait for the promise. Noah had to wait. And then you've got his sons, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob, all sorts of waiting. You've got to wait for your wife, you've got to wait for the famine to be over. You've got to wait in prison. Joseph's in prison, and all of a sudden, the people of Israel are in slavery, and they're waiting, 400 years. And then their, their rescuer, through Moses, comes, and he has to wait. He's raised in the throne room, and then he waits in the desert, and he waits by watching sheep. David has to wait. More sheep. (laughs) Jesus talks about sheep endlessly. So I I think he's really serious about this concept of waiting. In the waiting, what do we do in the waiting? Oftentimes, in the waiting is when we realize that I'm lost. (laughs) And it's interesting to me that Moses says, okay. He's got all these signs. He's got the supernatural power of God with him that he sees in a bush, he sees on a staff. And the the all-powerful God speaks to him. I'll be with you. God is with you. And I never never really had... There's these moments with Scripture where you know the Scripture really well, but you haven't encountered it. I had an encounter with just God with us. It was really brief, just as I was in the Word this week. And I know it's on our coin, and I've heard a lot of wonderful, cheesy things about that, but the, the, the God with us is the name Emmanuel. Jesus was given the name God with you. God gave his son the name that I'm with you because he knows that every human spirit needs to know that he's with them. It started with pulling a family of Israel back into the place of sonship that they were meant to have. I'll be with you, Moses. And when I give them my son, I'm going to give him a name that they'll know that I will always be with them. They'll know this by the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so this feeling of abandonment, of being in the waiting, wrestling with being lost. Is God even with me and where am I going and how am I getting there? If you haven't wrestled with that, you haven't wrestled with your humanity. And I think many of us, we know the really obvious things that we have to confront sometimes when we're pursuing something wonderful. Chris's story, it was was obvious, I need to confront this. What I love about their story is how Kara didn't think there were some of those things that were as serious to confront. And she just, I mean, it's just so eloquently how their story merges that the Lord wants you whole. Whether you're in addiction that's keeping you from getting up in the morning, or you're simply aware that you've been living for 30 years beneath the standard that Jesus set. Amen. And I think the heart of abandonment can speak to that this morning. So we're going to go to a couple of scriptures. Um, my wife is going to start in Luke 15, uh, piggybacking on what the Curtis is delved into on on the prodigal son last week a little bit and then we're going to hit Hebrews and then we're going to enjoy ministry time. So you want to hit Luke 15 for us? You can turn there right now. Luke 15.
3: So Luke 15 where we find the prodigal son it's actually a series of parables about lost things. And before I kind of get into unpacking this I just want you to do it with two lenses. One, knowing that Jesus, we often know he's close to the brokenhearted. But I want to add on to that and say Jesus is closest to those who are vulnerable, to those who feel abandoned, like Christian was saying, in the waiting. And often we'll say that, we'll be like, this was such a hard season, but Jesus was right there. And I got through it. I was in a hospital bed for months, but I've never felt closer to God. And then in Luke 15, it talks about the parable of the prodigal son, the lost sheep, the woman with the lost coin. But I just want to propose it's not about the lost coin. It's not about the lost sheep. And it's not about the prodigal son. All three are about the father and how the father responds in those situations So as I'm going through it, I just want you to keep this question in the forefront of your mind. Who is the father in each parable? So we'll start with the parable of the lost sheep. And I'm not going to go through each. Christian's like, babe, 30 seconds on each. I'm like, all right, I'll try. (laughs) Trying to get shorter shorter sermons in our church. Um, But there was a shepherd with 100 sheep and one of his lambs goes missing. And we often focus on, oh, he went after the one sheep. But the shepherd in those days, they were smart. And they know that the sheep, when they're together, they're protected. So he and a sheep was worth about, I mean, today's wage it would be about 100, 150. So if you have 100 sheep, that's a lot of money. But he knows he's not losing and leaving all this money behind. He said that one sheep is vulnerable. I know when that, the other sheep are in the community, That they're protected because they have each other. And a wolf is not going to come up against them and attack it. But if that one sheep goes out, they're isolated. They're alone and they're vulnerable. So the father in this story goes after the one sheep. And what does it say he does? He says, when he finds it, he says, let's celebrate. Let's have a party. The one who has been lost, it has wandered away. I found it and I brought it home. So in this passage, you see the father that goes after the vulnerable. He goes after the lonely, and what does he do when he finds that one? He celebrates. He throws a party. He's like, my one lost sheep is found. Like the song "Amazing Grace," I once was lost and now I'm found. It's probably the most profound song in Christian history. Everyone's heard that song, and it's a simple thing: the lost one was found. So we're going now to the parable of the last coin, the lost coin. Um, where the woman had ten valuable silver coins, and she'd lost one. Searched the house, diligently looking for it. And I just want to say this. You can be in the house and still feel lost. You can be in the house of God and still feel totally isolated and alone. And so she finds it, and what does she do when she finds the coin? She celebrates and there's a, she brings all her friends in, and there's a party. So it's like that aspect of the coin was lost, but when a lost thing is found, and that lost thing is placed in the community of the original Lost 10 Coins, there's a celebration. His heart delights to place the lonely in family. But it takes what Chris and Kerr were talking about, that radical vulnerability, that hard honesty to be like, I actually feel really alone. I know I'm surrounded by a whole lot of people in this house, but I feel lost. And then now, moving on a little bit longer, I'm going to talk about the parable of the prodigal son. I won't go into the whole story because I'm sure we all know it. But it's this story where there was two sons. One son asked for in- his inheritance early from the father. The father gives it to him. He leaves the land, squanders all the wealth, ends up being like, well, I'm going to work for a farmer. His pigs are eating better than I'm eating. And essentially starts eating the pig slap. Now, in your mind's eye, picture this son is like, okay, I'm going to starve eating the food pigs eat, or I'm going to go back and ask my father, can I be a slave in your household? So he's walking back, and from a long way off, his father saw him. And so we're going to pick up here, and I'm going to read this. So the father raced out to meet him. He lifted up his robe bearing his legs, swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, kissed him over and over and over again with tender love. So I want you to pause here for a minute. And this I found in a commentary years ago, and it forever changed how I read The Particle Sun. But traditional, not but, and, um, traditional Middle Easterners wearing long robes, they do not run in public. And you even go to Israel today, you can see the long robes, Middle Eastern men usually walking ahead, the women are walking behind but they're very distinguished, it's a patriarchal society. So they do not run in public, they never would have. To do so, it would have been deeply humiliating. But the father in this story, he runs, knowing that in doing so, he will deflect the attention of the entire community, villages were small, so everyone would have seen this disgrace son coming back. And the father runs knowing that in doing so, he will deflect the attention of the community, away from his ragged son to himself. People would focus on the extraordinary sight of a distinguished, self-respecting landowner, owner humiliating himself in public by running down the road and revealing his legs. The father, he saw his son who was vulnerable, who was ashamed, chose to lift his robes, placing that very shame, that very rejection upon himself. All the eyes of community bore on the father that day, not on that lost son that was coming home. Kind of sounds like someone else I know. And then the father, when he gets there, he gets out his best robe, which we know it speaks of identity. In other words, the father's like, I cannot stand looking at my son like this. Make him look like me again. And then he puts on a ring on his finger, which I always teach my kids in preschool. It's kind of like a credit card. Go transact things in my name. He's giving him his authority back. So the son would have had full access to all of his resources. And shoes, if he speaks of full restoration. Slaves didn't wear shoes. And so putting shoes on his feet, he's like, you are my son. So when we look at the father and what does he look like? What does he do? Know that it's also looking at covenantal relationships. We've been talking about this relationship goals, this series what do relationships, those covenant relationships do? What does the father look like? He covered them. They were vulnerable and he covered them. He sought them out, the shepherd was sheep. Identity, spoke I destiny, gave them all of his inheritance. Worth. Celebration. So we look at all these aspects of the father and what he's speaking over us. It's like if you're lost in me, you will be found. But it takes what Chris and Kara were talking about, this terrifying vulnerability, this terrifying honesty, the raw honesty, which is actually the most courageous thing we can do. And it's so beautiful because you see it all throughout scripture. So this, I'm going to go shorter, I already went longer, but it's just so stunning to see even in the stories, the parables, where a father would be like, oh, my son's being shamed. Oh, no, I will shame myself so that I can cover my own. I know I'll do that with my kids where they made a huge ax. I'm like, oh, that was my fault. Sorry, sorry. And I know it was their fault. But I don't want them to get in trouble for something that I could cover, unless they need to take responsibility or ownership. And I think even in our best relationships where something is your own fault, and maybe when it's tense, I'll be like, no, it's your fault, and I point a finger. But if it's like Christian, I've seen him, to me, be like where I knew I had done it. It was my fault. I had had the mishap. He'll take on the blame, because he's in this position, he's like, I wanna cover you. And even when I misspeak with my words, like, oh, we're gonna do this, and he's like, oh, and then we're not gonna do that at all, and I look like a fool, and wanna like, you know, either vulnerability, hangover, or rewind all my words. And he's like, babe, no, no, I think we've just had a really long day, we're actually not, you know, but it's doing that. The way that that loving father, or loving husband, or relationships, they cover each other. And they do it if that covering never is even returned, or that love is never returned. It's not conditional. And that's what we see so beautifully through all of Luke 15. Very
0: really good. So abandonment asks this question, am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? And this son somehow is abandoned spiritually, but he's not abandoned physically. He had an amazing father, but he was spiritually abandoned. He didn't believe he was enough. He needed his inheritance now. The second son was abandoned spiritually, not physically. And he still didn't get it. And and I I had this really stand out to me. It's not like it's a hidden verse or anything, but in, in Luke 15, 21, the, the son says this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He lost his sense of worth. He didn't believe he was worthy. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we we talked about our wrestling with Brene Brown, who is a popular TED talker and author. And she she shares two things on on what she calls the wholehearted, or those who are willing to be vulnerable. And the vulnerable are those who are willing to address shame. And she says the wholehearted are people who have a strong sense of love and belonging, and they believe that they are worthy. Love and belonging. And the second piece is that they believe that what makes them vulnerable is what makes them beautiful. And I believe the Father, as He covers us, that's what He's whispering over us is that what you have shame about, what you want no one to see, is what I am speaking beauty over your life. What makes you vulnerable is what makes you beautiful. And the enemy twists that because oftentimes we take our stuff that isn't pretty because we are ugly, fallen, and completely depraved apart from the perfection of Jesus. And he can take that and, and the enemy can then go, well, see, look, you're not worthy. Oh, Chris, you're not worthy because you did this, 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 and this over and over and over again. And yeah, you had a little bit of breakthrough and you're doing a little bit better, but ultimately, look at how disgusting you still are. And he wants to take you back to guilt that's on your behavior and shame that's on your identity. Shame focused on self, self, guilt focused on your behavior. And we just start this cycle of shame and guilt and we're completely separating ourselves from an identity that is secure apart from our actions. And when we separate our actions, all of a sudden that pursuit, that perseverance with the Lord in the middle of our stuff takes that stuff, takes that vulnerability because the beauty isn't in the action of our imperfection, the action of our sin. That's not the beauty. The beauty is in the vulnerability to confront it as those made in His image that get to take this as an act of worship and say I step in and I lean into the discomfort of this because I trust you. And so what Dr. Brown says is that those who are vulnerable they don't look at vulnerability as amazing or horrible because that's what many of us do. Oh my gosh, to be vulnerable in a community, I would like to vomit or at least gently dry heave in a corner so no one can see me.
3: Mostly you, babe, not me. That's where we make a good pair.
0: (laughs) But the reality is, is that those who are vulnerable and see the purpose of vulnerability, they recognize it as necessary.
3: Yeah, so good.
0: Not horrible or easy. It's necessary. And when you're in a community that is safe, Not perfect, but is covered by a father that's safe. You have the environment where you can make those steps. And so some of us need to pursue that really practically. They gave a perfect segue. Some of us need to go straight to them. We need a weekly commitment. What are my options? Some of us, I need to get coffee. Some of us need to make some friends. Some of us need to come to mom's group. Some of us, whatever it is, I think you probably are going to figure it out before the end of the day. But let's lean into the discomfort. Let's lean into the discomfort. So, Hebrews. I want to say just a couple things on, on the book of Hebrews in, in chapters 10 to 12. Let's read chapters 10 to 12 together. I'm just joking. Okay. <laughs> like, That's a long service. <laughs> uh, I'm just joking. So I, I want to say, say this about faith. The book of Hebrews was written, they're actually not sure who wrote it. It's all about faith, and in, in chapter 11 is kind of the hall of faith. It starts with Abraham, it talks about Moses, and so forth. Uh, but it says this in the end of chapter 10. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, this is verse 32, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then verse 39, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. I think that's an anthem for this house. This is who we are. What kind of people are we and what kind of people are we becoming? We're a people that we've encountered the love of God. We've encountered the spirit of God. We've encountered forgiveness and wholeness, miracles. We've got testimonies galore of how the Lord has invaded life, and yet we're still in this fallen world where we have to live in the tension. And what do we do? We declare over each other that we do not shrink back, but we are those who have faith, and this faith is what preserves the soul, and this kind of faith is an enduring faith. It says, it says endurance probably six, seven, eight times throughout chapters 10, 11, and 12. Moses, by faith, when he was born, was hidden for three months. There was fear. They were, it says they were not afraid of the king's edict. The reality is, is they were afraid, which is why they put their baby into a little boat on water and said, Godspeed. They were petrified. But what does it say over them? That they were not afraid of Pharaoh's edict. Which means what? The writer of Hebrews is interpreting this action through the history of the cross that says this act of faith that might have been full of fear was one that was pressing against fear, against the edict of the Pharaoh and was saying, but God is able. And that's what we're just asking you to do today, not to pretend that you're not afraid, not to pretend that you aren't completely not sure if this will work not sure if stepping and leaning into this discomfort again is going to work because I've tried it before and I've even developed more wounds from trying to deal with this before. I I just can't do this again. And that's okay. And not everything has to be solved in a day. We have to be a people that are willing to see every eradicating illegal act on earth that isn't replicating the realities of heaven. We need to say no to it today and every single day and be willing to walk into that tension as long as it takes to persevere until we meet him in the fullness of glory. If we can be a people that do that, we'll be much more than a bunch of people that kind of represent this charismatic stream that that have some great testimonies of how the Lord heals and how he gives us words as we walk on the street. And we have all these beautiful things that are happening, and yet we're all still tormented and unable to share with each other what we've been struggling with for decades. So let's be real. And if it's not today for you, then tomorrow. And finally, chapter 12 in Hebrews, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight And sin, which so closely entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured. Mm -hmm. You can't separate the joy of the cross without endurance of faith. Despising the shame. Because the cross pulls you into a lifestyle of endurance and of faith and of squashing shame because of your identity seated at the right hand, the throne of God. Are you enough? Yes. Why? Because you're a son and a daughter. You've got identity. You're a royal heir because of what Jesus did for joy, to step into a place of endurance of faith, to squash the shame. And to continually remind you of where you are, what you have access to, without tripping up the daily grind. Surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, both in heaven and on earth, that remind you continually of who you are. That pick you up when you fall down. That don't judge you. That remind you of how God sees you, not how the world sees you. That's the kind of people we're becoming. That's the kind of people we already are. And we do not have to do it perfectly. You do not have to do life perfectly. But we do invite you to do life together. Yes. You have something to add? Yeah. And then let me... Go. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Um, just actually the Holy Spirit brought back to mind what I'm having part of the children do today. And it's this grand ex- exchange that Jesus, it's Good Friday, going to the cross, wearing a crown of thorns. And then I'm having them put in this little resurrection egg, uh, a royal crown. And just thinking, what is that thorn in your side? What is that aspect that's so hard to believe you're good enough? So hard to be vulnerable with? Because Jesus went to that cross wearing that crown of thorns so that we could wear his royalty. We could be his royal priesthood the chosen generation like Kara spoke of. So we just want to invite all you guys and ministry team to come up.
0: And the worship team.
3: And the worship team. Um, But for any area that you would just like someone to partner with you today, like, okay, I get that in my head that I'm royalty, chosen generation, but I actually don't live that way in my feelings or in my thought life. Because we are just like, Jesus went to that cross For the joy set before him and on the other side of the cross isn't death. It isn't pain. There is pain we'll encounter, but it's divine life. It's hope. It's power that we can walk and live and move and have our being as royal priesthood. That crown of thorn, it was thorns because the first in Genesis, the curse was that you'll toil the ground and thorns will come forth. And so he wore the curse so that we could wear his crown of royalty. So the kids are going to get that, which is awesome. But actually, I'm um, Tiff and Clark are going to lead this ministry time. But yeah, just any.